0: Chapter 20 of The Sleeper Awakes. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The Sleeper Awakes by H. G. Wells. Chapter 20 In the City Ways. And that night, unknown and unsuspected, Graham, dressed in the costume of an inferior wind vane official keeping holiday, and accompanied by Asano in labor department canvas, surveyed the city through which he had wandered when it was veiled in darkness. But now he saw it lit and waking, a whirlpool of life. In spite of the surging and swaying of the forces of revolution, in spite of the unusual discontent, the mutterings of the greater struggle of which the first revolt was but the prelude, the myriad streams of commerce still flowed wide and strong. He knew now something of the dimensions and quality of the new age, but he was not prepared for the infinite surprise of the detailed view, for the torrent of color and vivid impressions that poured past him. This was his first real contact with the people of these latter days. He realized that all that had gone before, saving his glimpses of the public theaters and markets, had had its element of seclusion, had been a movement within the comparatively narrow political quarter, that all his previous experiences had revolved immediately about the question of his own position. But here was the city at the busiest hours of night, The people, to a large extent, returned to their own immediate interests the resumption of the real informal life, the common habits of the new time. They emerged at first into a street whose opposite ways were crowded with the blue canvas liveries. This swarm, Graham saw, was a portion of a procession. It was odd to see a procession, parading the city, seated. They carried banners of coarse black stuff with red letters. No disarmament, said the banners, for the most part in crudely daubed letters with variant spelling and... Why should we disarm? No disarming. No disarming. Banner after banner went by, a stream of banners flowing past, and at last at the end, the song of the revolt in a noisy band of strange instruments. They all ought to be at work, said Asano. They have no food these two days, or they have stolen it. Presently Asano made a detour to avoid the congested crowd that gaped upon the occasional passage of dead bodies from hospital to a mortuary, the gleanings after death's harvest of the first revolt. That night few people were sleeping, everyone was abroad. A vast excitement, perpetual crowds perpetually changing, surrounded Graham. His mind was confused and darkened by an incessant tumult, by the cries and enigmatical fragments of the social struggle that was as yet only beginning. Everywhere festoons and banners of black and strange decorations intensified the quality of his popularity. Everywhere he caught snatches of that crude, thick dialect that served the illiterate class the class, that is, beyond the reach of phonograph culture, in their commonplace intercourse. Everywhere this trouble of disarmament was in the air, with a quality of immediate stress of which he had no inkling during his seclusion in the wind-vane quarter. He perceived that as soon as he returned he must discuss this with Ostrog, this and the greater issues of which it was the expression, in a far more conclusive way than he had so far done. Perpetually that night, even in the earlier hours of their wanderings about the city, The spirit of unrest and revolt swamped his attention, to the exclusion of countless strange things he might otherwise have observed. This preoccupation made his impressions fragmentary, yet amidst so much that was strange and vivid, no subject, however personal and insistent, could exert undivided sway. There were spaces when the revolutionary movement, passed clean out of his mind, was drawn aside like a curtain from before some startling new aspect of the time. Helen had swayed his mind to this intense earnestness of enquiry, but there came times when she, even, receded beyond his conscious thoughts. At one moment, for example, he found they were traversing the religious quarter, for the early transit about the city afforded by the moving ways rendered sporadic churches and chapels no longer necessary, and his attention was vividly arrested by the façade of one of the Christian sects. They were travelling seated on one of the swift upper ways. The place leapt upon them at a bend and advanced rapidly towards them. It was covered with inscriptions from top to base, in vivid white and blue, save where a vast and glaring kinematograph transparency presented a realistic New Testament scene, and where a vast festoon of black to show that the popular religion followed the popular politics hung across the lettering. Graham had already become familiar with the phonotype writing, and these inscriptions arrested him, being to his sense for the most part almost incredible blasphemy. Among the less offensive were Salvation on the First Floor and Turn to the Right, put your money on your maker. The sharpest conversion in London, expert operators, look slippy. What Christ would say to the sleeper, join the up-to-date saints. Be a Christian, without hindrance to your present occupation. All the brightest bishops on the bench tonight, and prices as usual. Brisk blessings for busy businessmen. But this is appalling, said Graham, as that deafening scream of mercantile piety towered above him. "'What is appalling?' asked his little officer, "'apparently seeking vainly for anything unusual in this shrieking enamel. "'This! Surely the essence of religion is reverence.' "'Oh, that!' Asano looked at Graham. "'Does it shock you?' he said in the tone of one who makes a discovery. "'I suppose it would, of course. I had forgotten. "'Nowadays the competition for attention is so keen, "'and people simply haven't the leisure to attend to their souls, you know, as they used to do.' "'He smiled. "'In the old days you had quiet Sabbaths in the countryside.' "'Though somewhere I've read of Sunday afternoons that—' "'But that!' said Graham, glancing back at the receding blue and white. "'That is surely not the only. "'There are hundreds of different ways. "'But, of course, if a sect doesn't tell, it doesn't pay. "'Worship has moved with the times. "'There are high-class sects with quieter ways, "'costly incense and personal attentions and all that. "'These people are extremely popular and prosperous. "'They pay several dozen lions for those apartments to the council. "'To you, I should say.' Graham still felt a little difficulty with the coinage, and this mention of a dozen lions brought him abruptly to that matter. In the moment the screaming temples and their swarming touts were forgotten in this new interest. A turn of a phrase suggested, and an answer confirmed the idea that gold and silver were both demonetized, that stamped gold, which had begun its reign amidst the merchants of Phoenicia, was at last dethroned. The change had been graduated but swift brought about by an extension of the system of checks that had even in his previous life already practically superseded gold in all the larger business transactions. The common traffic of the city, the common currency indeed of all the world, was conducted by means of the little brown, green, and pink council checks for small amounts, printed with a blank payee. Asano had several with him, and at the first opportunity he supplied the gaps in his set. They were printed not on terrible paper, but on a semi-transparent fabric of silken flexibility, interwoven with silk. Across the all sprawled a facsimile of Graham's signature, his first encounter with the curves and turns of that familiar autograph for two hundred and three years. Some intermediary experiences made no impression sufficiently vivid to prevent the matter of the disarmament claiming his thoughts again. A blurred picture of a theosophist temple that promised miracles and enormous letters of unsteady fire was at least submerged, perhaps but then came the view of the dining hall in Northumberland Avenue. That interested him very greatly. By the energy and thought of Asano, he was able to view this place from a little screened gallery reserved for the attendance of the tables. The building was pervaded by a distant muffled hooting, piping, and bawling, of which he did not at first understand the import, but which recalled a certain mysterious leathery voice he had heard after the resumption of the lights on the night of his solitary wandering. He had grown accustomed to vastness and great numbers of people, Nevertheless, this spectacle held him for a long time. It was as he watched the table service more immediately beneath, and interspersed with many questions and answers concerning details, that the realization of the full significance of the feast of several thousand people came to him. It was his constant surprise to find that points that one might have expected to strike vividly at the very outset never occurred to him until some trivial detail suddenly shaped as a riddle and pointed to the obvious thing he had overlooked. He discovered only now that this continuity of the city— this exclusion of weather, these vast hills and ways, involved the disappearance of the household. That the typical Victorian home, the little brick cell containing kitchen and scullery, living-rooms and bedrooms, had, save for the ruins that diversified the countryside, vanished, as surely as the wattle hut. But now he saw what had indeed been manifest from the first, that London, regarded as a living place, was no longer an aggregation of houses, but a prodigious hotel, a hotel with a thousand classes of accommodation, thousands of dining halls chapels theatres markets and places of assembly a synthesis of enterprises of which he chiefly was the owner people had their sleeping rooms with it might be antechambers rooms that were always sanitary at least whatever the degree of comfort and privacy and for the rest they lived much as many people had lived in the new-made giant hotels of the victorian days eating reading thinking playing conversing all in the places of public resort going to their work in the industrial quarters of the city or doing business in their offices in the trading section He perceived at once how necessarily this state of affairs had developed from the Victorian city. The fundamental reason for the modern city had ever been the economy of cooperation. The chief thing to prevent the merging of the separate households in his own generation was simply the still imperfect civilization of the people. The strong barbaric pride, passions, and prejudices, the jealousies, rivalries, and violence of the middle and lower classes, which had necessitated the entire separation of contiguous households. But the change, the taming of the people, had been in rapid progress even then. In his brief thirty years of previous life, he had seen an enormous extension of the habit of consuming meals from home. The casually patronized horse-box coffee-house had given place to the open and crowded aerated bread shop, for instance. Women's clubs had had their beginning, and an immense development of reading-rooms, lounges, and libraries had witnessed to the growth of social confidence. These promises had, by this time, attained to their complete fulfillment. The locked and barred household had passed away, These people below him belonged, he learned, to the lower middle class, the class just above the blue laborers, a class so accustomed in the Victorian period to feed with every precaution of privacy that its members, when occasion confronted them with a public meal, would usually hide their embarrassment under horseplay or a markedly militant demeanor. But these gaily, if lightly dressed, people below, albeit vivacious, hurried, and uncommunicative, were dexterously mannered and certainly quite at their ease with regard to one another. He noticed a slight significant thing. The table, as far as he could see, was and remained delightfully neat. There was nothing to parallel the confusion, the broadcast crumbs, the splashes of viand and condiment, the overturned drink and displaced ornaments, which would have marked the stormy progress of the Victorian meal. The table furniture was very different. There were no ornaments, no flowers, and the table was without a cloth, being made, he learnt, of a solid substance having the texture and appearance of a damask. He discerned that this damask substance was patterned with gracefully designed trade advertisements. In a sort of recess before each dinner was a complex apparatus of porcelain and metal. There was one plate of white porcelain, and by means of taps for hot and cold volatile fluids, the diner washed this himself between the courses. He also washed his elegant white metal knife and fork and spoon, as occasion required. Soup and the chemical wine that was the common drink were delivered by similar taps, and the remaining covers travelled automatically in tastefully arranged dishes down the table along silver rails. The diner stopped these, and helped himself at his discretion. They appeared at a little door at one end of the table, and vanished at the other. That turn of democratic sentiment in decay, that ugly pride of menial souls, which renders equals loth to wait on one another, was very strong, he found, among these people. He was so preoccupied with these details, it was only as he was leaving the place that he remarked the huge advertisement dioramas that marched majestically along the upper walls and proclaimed the most remarkable commodities. Beyond this place they came into a crowded hall, and he discovered the cause of the noise that had perplexed him. They paused at a turnstile at which a payment was made. Graham's attention was immediately arrested by a violent loud hoot, followed by a vast leathery noise. "'The master is sleeping peacefully,' it vociferated. "'He is in excellent health.' He is going to devote the rest of his life to aeronautics. He says women are more beautiful than ever. Galoop! Wow! Our wonderful civilization astonishes him beyond measure. Beyond all measure. Galoop! He puts great trust in Bas Ostrog, Absolute confidence in Bas Ostrog. Ostrog is to be his chief minister. Is authorized to remove or reinstate public officers. All patronage will be in his hands. All patronage in the hands of Bas Ostrog. The councillors had been sent back to their own prison above the council house. Graham stopped at the first sentence, and, looking up, beheld a foolish trumpet face from which this was brayed. This was the general intelligence machine. For a space it seemed to be gathering breath, and a regular throbbing from its cylindrical body was audible. Then it trumpeted, galoup Galoop, and broke out again. Paris is now pacified. All resistance is over. Galoup. The black police hold every position of importance in the city. They fought with great bravery, singing songs written in praise of their ancestors by the poet Kipling. Once or twice they got out of hand, and tortured and mutilated, wounded and captured insurgents, men and women. Moral. Don't go rebelling. Ha-ha! galoup. Galoop! They are lively fellows. Lively brave fellows. Let this be the lesson to the disorderly banderlog of the city. Yah! banderlog, Filth of the earth! Galoop! Galoop! The voice ceased. There was a confused murmur of disapproval among the crowd. "'Damned niggers!' A man began to harangue near them. "'Is this the master's doing, brothers? "'Is this the master's doing?' "'Black police,' said Graham. "'What is that?' "'You don't mean—' "'Asano touched his arm and gave him a warning look, "'and forthwith another of these mechanisms screamed deafeningly "'and gave tongue in a shrill voice. "'Yah-ha! yah "'Yap! "'Hear a live paper yelp! "'Live paper! Yaha "'Shocking outrage in Paris! "'Yah-ha! "'The Parisians, exasperated by the black police to the pitch of assassination— Dreadful reprisals. Savage times come again. Blood, blood, Yaha! The nearer babble machine, hooted stupendously, galoop, galoop, drowned the end of the sentence, and proceeded in a rather flatter note than before, with novel comments on the horrors of disorder. Law and order must be maintained, said the nearer babble machine. But, began Graham, don't ask questions here, said Asano, or you will be involved in an argument. Then let us go on, said Graham, for I want to know more of this. As he and his companion pushed their way through the excited crowd that swarmed beneath these voices toward the exit, Graham conceived more clearly the proportion and features of this room. Altogether, great and small, there must have been nearly a thousand of these erections, piping, hooting, bawling, and gabbling, in that great space, each with its crowd of excited listeners, the majority of them men dressed in blue canvas. There were all sizes of machines— from the little gossiping mechanisms that chuckled out mechanical sarcasm in odd corners through a number of graves to such fifty-foot giants as that which had first hooted over Graham. This place was unusually crowded because of the intense public interest in the course of affairs in Paris. Evidently the struggle had been much more savage than Ostrog had represented it. All the mechanisms were discoursing on that topic, and the repetition of the people made the huge hive buzz with such phrases as lynched policemen, women burnt alive, fuzzy-wuzzy, "'But does the master allow such things?' asked a man near him. "'Is this the beginning of the master's rule?' "'Is this the beginning of the master's rule?' For a long time after he had left the place, the hooting, whistling, and braying of the machines pursued him. "'Galoop, galoop! Yaha, yaha, yap! Yaha! "'Is this the beginning of the master's rule?' Directly they were out upon the ways. He began to question Asano closely on the nature of the Parisian struggle. "'This disarmament! What was their trouble? What does it all mean?' Asano seemed chiefly anxious to reassure him that it was all right. But these outrages! You cannot have an omelet, said Asano, without breaking eggs. It is only the rough people. Only in one part of the city. All the rest, it is all right. The Parisian laborers are the wildest in the world, except ours. What? The Londoners? No, the Japanese. They have to be kept in order. But burning women alive! A commune! said Asano. They would rob you of your property. They would do away with property and give the world over to mob rule. You are master. The world is yours. But there will be no commune here. There is no need for black police here. And every consideration has been shown. It is their own negroes, French-speaking negroes, Senegal regiments, and Niger and Timbuktu. Regiments, said Graham. I thought there was only one. No, said Asano, and glanced at him. There is more than one. Graham felt unpleasantly helpless. I did not think, he began and stopped abruptly. He went off at a tangent to ask for information about these babel machines. For the most part, the crowd present had been shabbily or even raggedly dressed, and Graham learnt that so far as the more prosperous classes were concerned, in all the more comfortable private apartments of the city were fixed babel machines that would speak directly a lever was pulled. The tenant of the apartment could connect this with the cables of any of the great news syndicates that he preferred. When he learnt this presently, he demanded the reason of their absence from his own suite of apartments. Asana was embarrassed. I never thought, he said. Ostrog must have had them removed. Graham stared. How was I to know? he exclaimed. Perhaps he thought they would annoy you, said Asano. They must be replaced directly I return, said Graham after an interval. He found a difficulty in understanding that this newsroom and the dining hall were not great central places, that such establishments were repeated almost beyond counting all over the city. But ever and again during the night's expedition, his ears would pick out from the tumult of the ways the peculiar hooting of the organ of Bas Ostrog, galoup, galoop, with a shrill Yaha, Yaha, Yap, hear a live paper yelp, of its chief rival. Repeated, too, everywhere, were such creatures as the one he now entered. It was reached by a lift, and by a glass bridge that flung across the dining hall and traversed the ways at a slight upward angle. To enter the first section of the place necessitated the use of his solvent signature under Asano's discretion. They were immediately attended to by a man in a violet robe and gold clasp, the insignia of practicing medical men. He perceived from this man's manner that his identity was known, and proceeded to ask questions on the strange arrangements of the place without reserve. On either side of the passage, which was silent and padded, as if to deaden the footfall, were narrow little doors, their size and arrangement suggestive of the cells of a Victorian prison. But the upper portion of each door was of the same greenish transparent stuff that had enclosed him at his awakening, and within, dimly seen, lay, in every case, a very young baby in a little nest of wadding. Elaborate apparatus watched the atmosphere, and rang a bell far away in their central office at the slightest departure from the optimum of temperature and moisture. A system of such creatures had almost entirely replaced the hazardous adventures of the old-world nursing. The attendant presently called Grand's attention to the wet nurses, a vista of mechanical figures, with arms, shoulders, and breasts of astonishingly realistic modeling, articulation, and texture, but mere brass tripods below and having in the place of features a flat disc bearing advertisements likely to be of interest to mothers.